are the horsepower of the church, become fully devoted followers of Jesus. I think about men like, you know, something like a 66 cherry red restored Mustang with a 429 engine. And uh, God really wants to move that Mustang out of the garage, right, and get it into motion. And so a little later, Alec Hale, my beloved, will share a little inside joke. A- a- Alec asked me to call him his, my beloved, because I always call Debbie my beloved, so my beloved Alec. <laughs> he, <laughs> he's going to share about his masculine journey, and he's going to help us see what biblical manhood is. Um, and then we also believe that we glorify God by helping women, the heart and soul of the church, become fully devoted followers of Jesus. You know, I was watching something on television. I don't watch a whole lot of television, but I see some, and John Quinones has a show, What Would You Do? And on the show, there was this child, and the child was obviously lost on the sidewalk. And um, many men walked by the child, but there was a gentleman who stopped and inquired as the child's name and then introduced himself and kept some distance but called 911 and made sure the child had some help. Then, of course, John Quinones came out and congratulated him on doing well. And then they said something very striking to me. They said, you know, no man is so tall, no man is greater than he who stoops down to a child. And I thought about that with our men, about engagement with our children and just influencing their lives. It's good to be back after sabbatical, having a study break. It's good to sing praises to our God. How pleasant and fitting, the psalmist said, to praise him. Jesus did an amazing miracle beside the pool of Bethesda. If you have a Bible, this is John chapter 5. He said to the paralyzed man, do you want to get well? And this man said, I have no one to put me into the pool when the waters are being stirred by the angel of the Lord. And when I try to get in, someone else comes down ahead of me. This man had a false hope that by his efforts, perhaps with the help of someone else, he could make himself well, improve his condition. Bethesda means all flowing, the flowing house. It's a picture of all of humanity lying helpless. There is the blind. They can't see. There's scales on their eyes. If only their eyes could, their scales could fall off, they could see God in the gospel. And there are the lame. They can't walk. They have suffered many injuries to their legs and their ankles. If only that injury could be repaired, they could walk with God. And there are the paralyzed. I think about so many of us have been paralyzed by this economy, paralyzed by the problems in our lives, paralyzed by the pressures. There's a paralyzed man. He can't use his hands or his feet. He doesn't have the use of his legs to walk doesn't have the use of his hands to eat with, can't draw for himself a bath. And here was this man paralyzed, and Jesus asked him, do you want to get well? And then Jesus said, get up, pick up your mat and walk. Instantly, the man was cured, and he picked up his mat and he walked. Can you imagine what it must have felt like to have been invalid for 38 years and then have the use of your legs? Jesus made him well. And then the man came under attack. The man came under attack from the Pharisees, the religious community, because they didn't believe that Jesus should heal people on the Sabbath. They didn't believe the man should carry his mat on the Sabbath. But I'm here to tell you that God can heal people on the Sabbath. Jesus then said something very striking, chapter 5, verse 17. He said, My father is always at his work, to this very day, and I also am working. What Jesus said was, his Father in heaven is always doing his work, and I also am working. I see the hand of Father God working. I see Jesus Christ about his Father's business, and I see the Holy Spirit working in your lives. I see a slow-moving miracle in the life of my beloved Debbie, regaining the use of her ankles, her ankle and her foot. Just a year ago, Debbie could barely stand or walk, but now, nearly every morning, she's walking two two miles, two and a half miles. You see, our God is a healing God. 
Our God is a delivering God. Our God is a restoring God. Our God is a mighty God. And our God is worthy of the praise we bring to him. And I see the mighty hand of God in our young men, our older men. There was a young man in our church who was injured on Easter night. He was struck by a car in his motorcycle and taken to shock trauma center. And they performed surgery on his wrist and his leg. And last week, this young man played with our praise band. This week, he's back to college. You see, our God is a healing God. Our God is a restoring God. Our God is an almighty God. And our Father is working in our lives. And there was a man this week who suffered a heart attack in our church. And they took him down to Frederick Memorial. And there was Jeff Haynes, PA, treating him, giving him care. And then they took him down to Washington Hospital Center. And they did an angioplast upon him. They saw the blockages and then installed some stents. And what would have been a few years ago, open-heart surgery now was a one-hour procedure. You see, our God is working. Our God is an almighty God. Our God is a healing God. Our God is a restoring God. Our God is a delivering God. And I see the mighty hand of God upon our youth in our youth group. He's raised up young men like Peter Christensen, Daniel Lee. Daniel's father is the Chinese pastor. We know that God makes his habitation around the praises of his people because praise moves us from our problems to remember the greatness of our God. And this last Wednesday, one of the youth brought her friend. And watching the praise team do their music, she realized they had something she didn't have. There was something missing in her life. So she said to the friend who brought her, you know, I need to have what they have. And she took her outside the room to the lobby and she explained to her the way of salvation. And there in that very place on Wednesday night, she invited Jesus Christ to come into her life. How good and fitting it is to praise the Lord. For our God is a delivering God. Our God is a healing God. Our God is a restoring God. Our God is a mighty God. And our God is always at work in his people's life. And my friend Dan Green is converting the master house, the first floor thereof, into a prayer room. Some of you, the greatest need in your life is to simply be still and know that he is God. Jesus taught us to keep on asking, to keep on seeking, to keep on knocking, and we'll keep on receiving, we'll keep on finding, and the doors will be opened unto us. And then I see our church out at Waverly School. We were there for the open house on Thursday, giving away bottles of water and apples to the hungry. And what I really appreciate about the school is the spirit of welcome that is there and the diversity in that school and the presence of the Christians who were there. I want to speak to you all about spiritual formation, about how God brings about change in our lives. So we turn your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 18 and the first four verses. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at his wheel. But the pot he was working on from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot. Therein lies the reference to Plato, <laughs> the clay being worked into another form, shaping it as it seemed best unto him. The word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah. God takes the word of God by the spirit of God to speak to the people of God, in this case, by the prophet of God. God spoke to his people by the prophets, and the prophets were the mouthpiece of God. They get a word from God and then speak it. Job, in the midst of all of his pressures and problems, he said, I have treasured the words of your mouth more than my daily bread. Is that true for you? Do you treasure the words of God greater than your daily bread? Job was a man under great pressure, facing great problems, anxious to hear the very words of God. We heard last week Peter from Peter saying, Crave pure spiritual milk so that you may grow up in regards to your salvation. You will never grow up in your salvation 
without a healthy intake of God's Word. Many believers are starving from spiritual anorexia, starving to death from spiritual malnutrition. And then the Word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. To be a healthy disciple of Jesus Christ, the Word of God must be your first priority. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you truly are my disciples. The word to us is like a light that guides us through the darkness. The word to us is like a compass that helps us navigate through life. The word to us is like God's counsel we listen to in making decisions. God's word is the first word and the last word. And to be a healthy disciple of Jesus Christ, you need to be asking the question all the time, what does the Bible say? And when making decisions, when God says something, to do what he says. Become a doer of the word, not merely a hearer of the word. Jesus said, whoever hears my words and puts those words into practice will be like a man who built his house upon a rock. The rains fell down. The winds blew and beat against that house. The floods came up. Speaking of the problems of life. But the house stood firm because the house was built upon a rock. You build your life upon the very rock, the foundation of your life, Jesus Christ and his word. You abide in his word and he will make you strong. I cannot overemphasize to you the power of the word of God. It is powerful and it is alive. Of getting yourself into a small Bible study getting yourself into discipleship because people will have insights into God's word you will not have. And you will have blind spots. They'll help you to see. We really need to do life together in community, helping one another progress and mature in our faith. You see, spiritual maturity is simply displacing the lies I have believed and replacing them with the truth. And when you know the truth, the truth will set you free. Amen? Amen. He said, go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. Jeremiah himself may have known the potter. The potter's house was probably a place the town frequented because of the need for pottery, of, of uh, vessels. You drank from something made from the potter. You put your water into something from the potter. And he promised him that he would give him a message at the potter's house. Jeremiah himself would have been very familiar with the pottery imagery. Why? Because in the very beginning, God said, let us make man in our image. Man and woman are made in the very image of God. Somebody said that when God made the man, he said, it is good, but I can do better, so I'll make the woman. Little joke. Man and woman are made both in the image of God. You see, God himself is triune. God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And man himself is tripartite, meaning man is body, soul, and spirit. And the soul itself has three parts, mind, will, and emotions. With the mind, we can think. That's why we need to bring every thought captive into obedience to Christ. And with the will, we can choose. We can either choose to obey God or disobey God. And with the emotions, we can feel. And some of our emotions become very damaged as we go through life. God would have known, Jeremiah would have known that from the very beginning, like a potter forming that vessel, so God formed us. Go back in your imagination to the very beginning. God taking the common elements, the clay, and forming lovingly the man. And knitting together his inside parts, and then breathing to his nostrils the very breath of God. When Jeremiah was just a teenager, he heard this word of the Lord, Jeremiah 1, verse 4. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, Jeremiah, I knew you. Before Jeremiah ever knew the Lord, God knew him. Before you ever knew the Lord, the Lord knew you. The Lord knows everything there is to know about you. God is intimately acquainted with you and with your ways. And before you were born, Jeremiah, I set you apart. 
God didn't have little plans for Jeremiah. God had big plans. God didn't intend Jeremiah to live small. God intended him to be large. For I have appointed you and anointed you, Jeremiah, to be a prophet unto the nations. And Jeremiah said, Sovereign Lord, I am only a youth. And God said, You speak the very words I give you. And you go to the places I send you. And you do what I command you to do. You see, God had great plans for Jeremiah and set him apart for when he was just a young man. God has set you also apart. Didn't you love the testimony last week of Nancy? When she heard the whisper of God saying to her, I have set you apart. All of her life she felt damaged, inferior. If you looked at her outside, you'd said she had it all together, but inside she said she was a mess. She came into the world not feeling welcome, not feeling wanted, feeling rejection. And all of her life, she'd been trying to measure up to people's expectations, but said she fell short. She felt inferior. And then she was in church, and she saw the mother with her daughter just stroking her arm. She saw the tenderness of this. And the Holy Spirit spoke to her and said, I've set you apart. Don't you know that God himself has set you apart? That God has plans for your life? That God has a purpose for you? That God has designed you to fulfill his purpose and his plan? Jeremiah knew about this pottery imagery. You see, civilization is often tracked through pottery. <laughs> a friend of mine, he's an archaeologist. And he was so excited to show me a pot from the 7th century. He took it from the pot sherds, and he had reconstructed the pot. And he said, Pastor R, let me show you this pot that's 2,700 years old. And I said, what does it do? He said, that proves you're not an archaeologist. He said, go down to the potter's house. You see, what the potter does is he takes this lump of clay, and he begins to form it and fashion it. The first step a potter takes is he wedges the clay, which is getting the air bubbles out of it. And then he places that clay, that lump of clay, onto the potter's wheel. And there's a process he goes through in shaping the clay. The first step is centering the clay onto the wheel, becoming centered. Secondly, it's called opening, which is making the top of the clay open, making it hollow, if you will. The next step is called flooring, which is making the bottom of the vessel either flat or rounded. And the last step is called throwing, which is shaping the walls so they're an even thickness. Jeremiah is told to go down to the potter's house because the potter's going to be working. He could have said to us, go down to the McDonald's. I'm going to speak to you there. Or go over to the grocery store. I'm going to speak to you there. Or go to the movie theater. I've got a message for you there. Or go to the barber shop. I've got something to say to you there. Last time I was at the barber shop, I saw this big pile of gray hair. I thought God was speaking to me there. And a brother came up to me afterward and said, I think you saw my hair on the floor, Pastor Arp. Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up on his throne room. But Jeremiah was told to go down to the potter's house and God would speak to him there. So what is the potter's purpose? The potter's purpose is to form and reform the clay. Jeremiah had an ep um, epiphany from God concerning the pot and the potter. The clay is us, and God himself is the potter. And what the potter is doing is he's producing something beautiful and something useful. To make out of the clay something the world has never seen. And what God is doing in your life right now is you are clay in his hand. And God is forming you. And God is reforming you. And God is fashioning you. And God is shaping you. And perhaps God is stretching you. And maybe God is dealing with some of the Mars in your life. You see, the clay is very common clay. And what the potter does is he takes something common like us 
and he turns us into something very useful and beautiful. That's why Timothy would say in a man's house are all kinds of vessels. There are noble vessels, ignoble vessels. If a man cleanses himself from the former, he becomes useful unto his master. The vessel the potter is making is a beautiful vessel and a useful vessel. You see, there's flower pots and coffee cups and water jugs. And the master knows what he is doing. He's up to something in your life. He wants to produce in you something very beautiful. Remember Mike, Michelangelo before the limestone? And someone said to him, what are you doing? And he said, I'm extracting an angel from the rock. The master is doing something very beautiful in your life. So what is the problem? The problem is we've already taken a shape. You see, other potters have already given us a shape. In this case, Israel herself was formed by the culture all around her. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13 says, I have two things against my people. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewn cisterns for themselves that can hold absolutely no water. They had rejected the living God. Imagine that. In an arid, semi-arid culture where there's not much water, where an oasis is a beautiful thing to drink from. They had rejected God, the fountain of living water. And they hewn cisterns that can hold no water. They were bowing themselves down to idols. And so Jeremiah was bringing a word of correction to his people. When we come to Christ... We are born into his family. This is your brothers and sisters, the family of God. But we bring with us a form. We bring with us some baggage. Our shaping comes primarily from our families. We have lodged in our brains a certain way of living or thinking or feeling from growing up in our families. You may be a Christian, but you have a pull to your past from what has shaped your own past. You might say you have a blueprint for living. So the primary influence on your life is your family of origin, for good or for bad. Your family of origin has shaped you and has formed you. You could have been growing up in a family, and you were taught to say no when you meant to say yes. Or you could have said yes when you meant to say no. You could have learned to shut down when people get upset with you. You could have learned that what makes you significant and secure is making money. It's all about making money. It's all about going to the right school. It's all about choosing the right career. It's all about making the right income. So when you don't have money, you feel insecure and insignificant. You could have learned that to be approved by others, you need to be approved by others to feel good about yourself. You know what? If God puts his stamp of approval upon you, you don't really need the approval of others. But you could have grown up thinking, unless I have the approval of others, I can't feel good about myself. You could have learned that sharing your feelings is really weakness. You could have learned that being angry isn't really allowed. You could have learned that you criticize others to feel better about yourself. You could have learned that I do, if I do what others tell me to do, they won't get mad at me. So you live in bondage to the opinions of others. So what does God do with our form? Whether we like it or not, our lives have taken form. We have been formed by other potters. There are broken places in our life. We are like broken pieces of pottery. And what the master potter does is, He takes that formless lump of clay and he begins to fashion us and form us into his own likeness and image. We are involved in a process known as progressive sanctification. When you believed in Jesus Christ, you were were justified. And now what God is doing in you is he is shaping you into the image of the person of Jesus Christ, setting you free from everything that has hindered you, 
setting you free from the bondages that have enslaved you. And he's shaping you into his very own image. (laughs) And sometimes this process of sanctification is a very difficult process. I remember one time, it was Saturday morning at our house, and my son Chris said, Dad, where does that annoying voice come from? It was cleanup time at the house, and my dad was a commander in the Navy. And so when there was chaos on the ship, he just took command. And he put up this voice like, I'm the captain, you'll do what I tell you to do. So I began barking out orders to my family, especially to my son and daughter. I think people had scurried away. So I was commanding them to do these various functions around the house. People were sort of ducking for cover. And Chris said to me, Dad, where does that voice come from? And I had to think for a moment where that voice was coming from. It wasn't my normal voice. This was my dad's voice. What he heard was the voice I heard growing up. You see, what you have to understand is there's like this iceberg, right? And you see about 10% of the iceberg. But really what you get in trouble is the 90% you can't see beneath the surface. And there was something from my past that was influencing my present. What the master potter really wants to do is to take that lump of clay of yours and fashion you into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Are you open for that? You see, a piece of clay can either be tender and soft and receptive and malleable and shapeable, or clay can get hardened and become resistant to the master's touch. God wants you to be useful and beautiful to him. So how do we change? The master potter begins working with your lump of clay, (laughs) and he finds Mars, if you will, in the clay. And we, the clay, become aware of our issues. Why do we need to be transformed? Because we all have issues. Say with me, I have issues. Turn to your neighbor and say, you have some issues too. (laughs) All right, the process of transformation requires a malleable person, a capacity for change. God is the potter. He's trying to get your attention. He's trying to reform you. And we are the clay And sometimes we are resistant, right? There's a hardness in our hearts. So where does the resistance come from? A life that gets set in its ways. (laughs) You know, women will often say, I want to marry him young before he gets set in his ways. (laughs) So a person can kind of get set in their ways, can't they? And we hear people say, well, I'm just too old to change. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. I'm just too old to make any adjustments in my life. No matter how old you are, God can get a hold of you and begin to change you. Fear can keep you set in your ways also. We become afraid of change. So I've identified what I'm going to call male resistance to change. (laughs) Now this is what a normal man will say. It's not very manly to work on my issues. I don't really have issues. Other people have issues. Remember that cardboard testimony we heard last week? I used to think of Christian men being weak, but now I am one. You know what God says about weakness? That when you admit your weakness, therein you find your strength. You're going to hear Alec talk in just a moment about some of his own personal weaknesses. And you're never stronger than when you're telling the truth about yourself. You were brought up to be tough. You just need to get over it, right? You need to stop acting like a girl. What does that mean, stopping like like a girl? (laughs) We get filled ourselves with our own pride. And we say, I really, Pastor R, don't have any issues. And that is a lie, okay? And then there's female resistance, female clay resistance. What is that? I don't have time to work on me. Who really has the issues is my husband. He's got the issues, right? He's got bigger issues than I have, and I'm going to work on his issues. Right. I don't have time to work on my issues because I'm always pouring myself out for others. 
You see, we deal with our pain, but we don't let God deal with our pain. We have stuff from our past. I heard about a woman. She'd gone off to uh, Weight Watchers. And while she was a Weight Watcher, she was making some steady progress. And so it was time for confession. So she made her confession. (laughs) And what she said was, you know, I've really renounced eating birthday cakes. But on this one occasion, I made a birthday cake for my daughter. It was her birthday. And I served up all the pieces of cake. But I had about half the cake left. And I resolved I wouldn't eat the cake because I'm dealing with my issues. So I wrapped it up with saran wrap and aluminum foil. And I took it out to the garbage and put it in the garbage, half the cake, and covered it up with diapers, making it very unattractive. Half an hour later, I went out to the trash can, opened the lid, took away the diapers, took the cake out of the trash can, unwrapped the aluminum foil and the saran wrap, and I ate the entire cake. How many of you think that she's healthy? How many think she has a few issues? You see, we can be ourselves resistant pieces of clay. God himself wants to do a deep and powerful work in your life. Another word for Brokenness is being marred. We have been broken out of the box. Stuff has happened to us that has caused us to be deepening in our brokenness. And so we all have things we need to deal with. I really want you to consider being part of our men's and women's ministry because here we're going to help each other in the journey. We're going to look at the Word of God together. We're going to speak truth in each other's life and we can admit the truth about ourselves. God desires truth in your inner being, most inner, innermost being. Now here comes Debbie to tell you all about it. Women's ministry. In women's ministries, the leadership team agrees that we are all created in the image of God, whether we're men or women, and that we are created to become like Christ. See, God is the molder, and we women are being transformed into Christ-likeness. Now, I was talking about the potter and the clay, and we had the Play-Doh for the children to play with. I could just inform you here that this is Play-Doh. Just let's sit here. And you've been informed, and it's just Play-Doh. But our desire for women is that we aren't just being informed about God's Word, but that we're truly being transformed by God's word. We're being changed by it. We desire that the women here at Grace become fully devoted followers of Christ through his transforming power. Our vision for women at Grace is that every woman will hunger for truth and righteous living. We chose this year our theme verse to be from Isaiah 61, along with the church, Verses 1, 2, and 3, but 3b especially. And if you see the last part, it says, They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Do you know oak trees have deep roots? that They grow down deep into the soil to get their sustenance. Oak trees produce beautiful leaves and little nuts, or acorns we could say. I think an oak tree is a beautiful example of how God wants a woman to root herself in the Bible so that we can respond to the people in our lives with godly response. There are many illustrations in the Bible where women are responding, but the best one, I think, is the story of Mary, the mother of Jesus. After she had been told by the angel that she was going to be the mother of the Son of the living God, and that she was to name him Jesus, she responded and she said, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Mary responded in her heart and in her obedience to God. What a beautiful response. I would love to respond like that when God tells me to do something. I am your servant, Lord. May it be to me as you you have said. Women are responders by nature. It's a gift from God. But it is to God that we must respond first. So how does a woman respond to God? 
I think first you must know what the truth is. John 8.31 says, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Here at Grace, it's our desire that the women, all the women who attend, will learn how to study her Bible. Who will go home from church and say, where does it say that in the Bible? Let me see. Who will check things out. When you see things throughout the week, you will check your Bible and say, what does the Bible say about that? The Bible is our standard for living. It is truth, it has answers, and it gives direction for life. We would love for all women to respond to God and to his teachings. We have opportunities for this. On Wednesday nights, starting September 22nd, Brenda Rhoda will be leading one of our ladies' Bible studies on the book of Esther. This will be a committed group of 25 women who are committed to the series and who will learn one way of studying their Bibles. There's another young group that has started up of young women, um, young singles and young marrieds, that Marin Forney has um, been working together with. It just started. If you have questions and want more answers in the back table that after we're dismissed, we'd love for you to come by and stop and ask us. But these are ways that you can learn to study your Bible. But we also have discipleship partnering. Discipleship training is happening here, and Berlin Mahaffey is putting together discipleship partners. If you're interested in learning how to be a disciple, starting September 12th, we have a discipleship Sunday school class at 11 o'clock. We'd love to have you join us. So discipleship is one-on-one -on -one work with another woman who will help us learn to become more like Christ. It's a great way to have someone walk this journey on earth with us. Women are responders. We're also responders to our families. We have women at Grace who are students, who are single, who are married, who are engaged. All women are called to become like Christ. We all need a perfect standard that will never lead us in the wrong direction. But only God's word is that standard. As responders to our family's needs, women can rely on the truth that the Bible teaches. In 2 Timothy 3.16, the Bible says that all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. As responders to our families, we need the truth of God's word to lead and guide us. As wives, daughters, or mothers, God's principles will guide us in our responses with our families. Here at Grace, we have a MOPS program, Mothers of Preschoolers. You saw a little clip earlier. This is a delightful time for moms who are pregnant to moms who have children who are kindergarten age to gather together to share biblical principles for raising their children. Our MOPS programs meet twice a month on Mondays, starting on September 13th. We really want the women of Grace Community to intentionally become women of the word. As each woman learns the truth of God's word, then she can pass this to her family, and this truth she can teach to others. Finally, women are responders to others. When women see needs of others, we want, them to, we want the women to ask the Lord, is this something we should be a part of? We have many ministries at Grace, many things to get involved with. But we ask each of you first to be sure your own roots are solidly planted. Do you have a place and a time when you are able to learn God's truth? We quickly respond to the needs of our families and the needs of others, but I encourage you to first respond to your own personal need to become a woman of the word. We do have a ladies' retreat coming up in October in Williamsburg. This would be another opportunity to pull aside to spend time with the Lord. Women's ministries at Grace Community Church have the vision that women will be fully devoted followers of Christ. We would like to see each woman hunger for truth and righteous living. We'd like to see women learning to study their Bibles. It is our desire to see women being discipled and then discipling others. And we desire that each woman who attends Grace be rooted and grounded in her love 
for Jesus Christ. It is our vision that our women will be called Oaks of Righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Well, good morning. I'm Alec Hale. I'm one of the men of the church as well, too. When I met Felicia, uh, I weighed 35 pounds less than I do right now. So imagine that for a moment. Uh, when she first saw me, she turned to the, her, one of her friends who was right beside her, and it, it wasn't this uh, knight in shining armor kind of thing. It was, this is the word she said. She loves to tell this story. Who's that gangly geek? That's what she said. Uh, uh, um, what does a man look like is the question. I want, to, I want you to ask that question of yourself. Do you have a definition of what a man is? What is the definition of a biblical man? And while you're thinking about that, I want to tell you of a question that's come up for me for a good part of my adult life from when I left for college until just a couple years ago. One question kept repeating in my mind, and it was this. Alec, when are you going to be a man? And I remember first that when I first went off to college, when I was 18, I'd left home. Because when I was younger, I thought when I leave for college, when I'm on my own, then I'll feel like a man. I can remember being at Ohio State and looking in the mirror and thinking, I wonder when I'll be a man, because I don't feel like it now. And the same thing happened uh, a few years later. I got married, so I married Felicia. And uh, here I am with a wife, and uh, we go to our first apartment. And I can remember also, it happens to be shaving with me, shaving in the mirror. And thinking, I wonder when I'm going to feel like a man. I remember the same thing when I graduated from vet school and I had my diploma in this black robe and a thing that looks like a manly kind of thing to do. And yet I still have that question, when am I going to be a man? I thought the same thing when I became a lieutenant colonel. When I got promoted uh, to lieutenant colonel several years ago, when will I be a man? It's a question that sounds all right on the top, but really there's this ugly undertow of it that the answer for me was not yet. Give it a little more time and maybe then you'll feel like a man. And really what that's saying is, no, you're not one now. For me, the answer always frustrated me. And that answer shut, shut me down and caused me to live small. I mean, do you ever ask yourselves that question, when will I be a man? Uh, did you ever get a satisfactory answer if you do ask that question? To tell you the truth, I never did. And the problem was, I was asking the wrong question. The question isn't, when am I going to be a man? The question is the one I asked you earlier. What is a godly man? Because you can never become something if you don't know what the standard is. And so until I found out what the biblical answer of what a man was, I'd always be frustrated, always be unclear, always be uncertain whether I met it or not. And I tell you, the enemy loved that. Loves that uncertainty, loves that um, unease. Six years ago, five years ago, I went to a class here at Grace. It's called um, Men's Fraternity. The first of that 24-week, it's a 24-week class, huge class, college-level kind of thing, wonderful class, called the Quest for Authentic Manhood. And Robert Lewis in that gave me a definition of what that is. Gave me a definition of what um, authentic manhood is. Here's the truth. Until you know your identity in Christ, you'll always be uncertain, frustrated, and unfulfilled. Men, you have to know the biblical definition of what manhood is before you can ever be a fully devoted man after the heart of God. The beauty, God does not leave us empty-handed. In Genesis 1 through 3, God presents us with a definition of what it means to be a man. And in those chapters in Genesis, we see Adam called to a high and wonderful standard. And then we see him tragically fall short of his calling. And in his falling, we see the root of all our failures ever since. But God doesn't leave us empty. Because in Christ, uh, Christ was called to and gloriously fulfilled God's calling for him. And in Christ's earthly life, we see what it means to be fully a man. I'm grateful to Robert Lewis in that same course, the author of the Men's Fraternity Curriculum, for distilling those chapters in Genesis and Christ's example into a tangible, usable definition of Christian manhood. We're going to put it up here. It's actually in your bulletin, too, and men, I'd encourage you. I have it written in the back of my Bible, and I use it to measure actions and thoughts and things I'm going to do. It says this, A real man from a biblical perspective is one who rejects passivity, accepts responsibility, leads courageously, and expects the greater reward, God's reward. 
a real man rejects passivity. Genesis 3.6 tells us a story. Um, it's the first where Eve has this apple and she's under the, the tree and the, the snake is coming up to her and he entices her to eat that thing. And you wonder, you might wonder, where's Adam in this picture? And if you read that verse to the end, it says Adam is right there beside her. And so this whole time where literally the enemy of the world is after his wife, he stands back and does nothing. It reminds me of a quote from Winston Churchill uh, from the first part of World War II where England was reluctant to get into the war. And he said, the only thing necessary for evil to prevail is for good men to do nothing. And as the root is found back in Adam, and I'm afraid it follows us men today, it's our leading sin is the sin of passivity. Passivity is doing nothing when we're called to engage. We check out of the social and spiritual lives of those we're called to lead. We hide behind a newspaper or a TV remote or a hobby or our work. Real men live deliberately. Real men engage. Real men step in and step up. Real men look ahead and plan and act for the good of those they're called to protect and comfort and lead. The second point is real men accept responsibility. My favorite Louis L'Amour quote, Louis L'Amour is a, a Western author. He says this, the difference between a man and a boy is not one of years, but rather the willingness to accept responsibility. Real men accept responsibility. Do you take responsibility for your own actions? If you have a job, are you owning and fulfilling the responsibilities there? Are you married? Are you a father? Are you accepting and striving to f fulfill the responsibilities of those great and noble callings? In 2 Corinthians and in 1 Peter, Christ has identified us as his ambassadors and his holy priests. Those are true definitions of my calling, of men, women, frankly, too. You're called to be an ambassador of Christ. You're called to be a holy priest of Christ. Do I even recognize or own that responsibility? Am I taking actions to fulfill them? Real men do. A real man leads courageously. Here's the Army's definition of a leader. A leader is someone who takes responsibility for a task or a mission and then influences others to help them meet that task or mission. So again, Army's definition of a leader is someone who takes responsibility for a task or a mission and then influences others to help them meet that task or a mission. Men were called to be courageous leaders. We've been given the mission of advancing God's kingdom in all the areas that we have responsibility for. To lead that mission courageously means to lead with the heart, even when it's tough or uncomfortable or when you're afraid. I am afraid to go to the marriage retreat. I haven't gone in the last three years because the intimacy of it frightens me. I've, I've planned other things or I've uh, laughed about it. I've just done things to not be there. And I tell you, in spite of that fear, actually because of that fear, this year I've committed to go because I'm called to courageously lead in my marriage. And I know that it's the best thing for my relationship with Felicia, even if it's uncomfortable for me. A real man expects the greater reward, God's reward. What motivates you? Are you after money or security or status or comfort? Each of these is a temporary and fleeting reward. Real men look beyond immediate gratification and recognize and embrace the joy and eternal reward that God promises when we seek Him first and set the course of our lives to serve Him and others. So in closing, let's take a look at it once more. Real men reject passivity. They accept responsibility. They lead courageously, and they expect God's reward. St. Ignatius said, The glory of God is a man fully alive. The glory of God is a man fully alive. God loves and is glorified when a man embraces his true identity and rises to what God has called him to be. And now that I have a biblical standard of what it means to be a man, I can measure my life and my actions and thoughts against it. I have no more frustrations of the unknown of when I'm going to be a man. I can take that standard and I can teach my boys. My boys who are 14 and soon to be 10 uh, can weigh their actions. When we see men doing things that are courageous, they go, hey, Dad, that's a, that guy's leading courageously. We have a standard that we can do it against. They're not asking when I am. They're on the process of becoming men, and that's what I'm doing as well. It's wonderful to have a definition. I have a standard I can share and teach my boys. Men, we have a defined calling from God. We can confidently seek the Holy Spirit's help and the help of other men to act and grow towards the goal of becoming godly men. And what does this have to do with men's ministry? It's this. Men's ministry is just men doing ministry. It's men's 
embracing our identity in Christ, and then through the Holy Spirit's power, living out that identity. Men's ministry is leading your family. It's loving your wife. It's protecting time with your children. It's engaging the community that God's placed you in. Real men's ministry is men influencing their workplace for good. Men's ministry is men building community and meeting needs through everything they do, even basketball and men's studies and retreats and work projects. It's men looking around them for areas of need and then actively bringing resources and talents together to meet that need. Real men stand shoulder to shoulder with other godly men and strive to fulfill each of the four aspects of biblical manhood. And in doing so, they bring life to those around them, they advance the kingdom of God, and they glorify Him. You may be wondering, you know, who am I? And what God says about you is, you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus under good works, which God foreordained before the foundation of time. Alec, I bless your manhood, because your manhood has been a blessing to me and to many men in our church. And darling, I bless your womanhood, because you have blessed me in many ways. And I bless the men and women of our church. And I want you all to get connected to each other. Because you can't do this kind of work by yourself. You need community for spiritual change and growth. So I just have two questions as we close. Would you consider yourself to be a piece of clay that's soft, tender, malleable, shapeable in the master's hand? Would you see yourself more as kind of hardened, calloused, resistant, to the voice of God in your life. My second question is, do you have a good attitude towards school tomorrow? A good attitude would be something like enthusiastic, energetic, looking forward to it, lot to learn, right? Jumping on in. So I'm going to pray. Let's do it. Father in heaven, thank you for what we've heard this day about change and transformation and being shaped. Thank you, Lord, for raising up our men and raising up our women. Help us as men to engage as leaders of our family, as a husband, as a father, as a brother. Father, help us to step into the role that you've given to us with the power you supply by your Holy Spirit. Help we as women to connect with one another also, Lord, and connect with your word and connect with the truth that our lives would be changed. Father, we pray for a mighty movement of your spirit through our church, for there to be many discipleship relationships being formed, many entering into small groups, many conversations about what you're changing about our lives. Father, we give you all the glory for what you have done and are doing and will do in our lives. Conform us to the likeness of your Son, we pray, in the name of Jesus. God bless you all.